I'm excited to have the chance to kick off a new series with you that we're going to be doing this month. Uh, I and some of the other pastors called Progress, Not Perfection. In fact, I want to start today by talking to you about the defeatism of perfectionism. Because perfectionism has no place in the Christian life, I want to say to you. And uh, that's what this series is really all about. In fact, if you live the life of a perfectionist, you're going you're gonna to be defeated uh, as a Christian. You will not be able to live the Christian life the way God intends you to be able to live it. Now, just to be sure you know what, I, what I'm talking about when I talk about perfectionists today or perfectionism, uh, let me just give you some characteristics because... You know, sometimes we have stereotypes about people who are perfectionists, that they're neatniks, they're always, you know, dressed impeccably, and uh, they're well-groomed, they have disciplined fitness routines, and they live, they live always by the highest standards in their lifestyle. And I, I want to say to you that that's, that's not necessarily true, that in fact, perfectionists can come in all shapes and sizes, from meticulous to sloppy, because... This isn't an issue of external things. It has everything to do with how we think and feel about our life and about living in our mind and heart. Let me give you some characteristics. Perfectionists, for example, they are people that are living with often unrealistically high standards and expectations. They're discontent with being or doing anything less than exceptionally. They, they can obsess their attention on minor details and sometimes miss big, major things because they're so obsessed with minor things. I, I wish I had time to tell you how one time a single drop of oil on my garage floor that I couldn't live with ended up costing me almost $5,000 before it was all said and done. Obsessiveness. One guy said to me one time, well, I'm not a perfectionist. I just have very particular tastes about what I like. And uh, I'm already seeing some elbows happening out there between uh, couples sitting together. A tendency to push oneself to the point of burnout. That's very common with people in perfectionism. Surprising procrastination on a slew of relatively simple tasks. If you know a person who's a, who's a big procrastinator, it could be that the issue is not laziness at all. It's this issue of perfectionism. I'll explain why in just a moment. Unreasonable fears of failure or inadequacy or rejection. A heightened awareness of weaknesses and mistakes and flaws and what's wrong overseeing what's good or right with something. In fact, uh, Someone else uh, I remember said, uh, perfectionists are people who take great pains with themselves and they make great pains for others. And I'm seeing more elbows happening out there. Surprising number of amens on that one. Some of you must be married to them or work for them or uh, often perfectionists carry a sense of just not measuring up at all in their lives. Now, I, I realize people would be quick to say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't God have high standards for us? I mean, we just, we just went through two series. We did one on sexuality, and we talked about living by the highest standards 
of sexual behavior. And we just finished a financial series, and, and some of you perhaps, you know, you've started thinking about trying to follow biblical financial practices and habits and disciplines. In fact, uh, you know, aren't those, aren't those high standards that we're to live by? And I say, yes, they are. In fact, they're standards of excellence that God is calling you and me to put into our lives. In fact, uh, perfectionists would love these two verses. If you've pulled out your message notes that are right at the top, Jesus in Matthew 5, 48. In fact, let's read this aloud. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ah, there's a life verse for a perfectionist right there. I mean, didn't Jesus endorse the idea of perfectionism? No. Or the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13 when he says, and this also we wish, even your perfection be perfect. But I want to say to you, the Bible has nothing to do with perfectionism or being a perfectionist. In fact, once perfectionism gets introduced to the Christian life, it becomes toxic and destructive to our spiritual life. It hinders our growth, it steals our joy, it discourages and defeats us. So let's, let's kind of dive in here. Let's take a look, first of all, at some of the misbeliefs that can hold you back, that are, that are really underneath this whole thing of perfectionism. Now, misbelief it's a wrong idea, it's a wrong notion, it's a wrong perspective that we have on something, but we don't realize that. That's why it's a misbelief. And there are some misbeliefs, I do wanna mention three of them, I mean, I can't take all my time to talk about this, though I could, because I consider myself a perfectionist in recovery. In fact, I started to walk out here and say, hi, my name is Steve Williams, and I'm a recovering perfectionist. And those of you who are friends of Bill W. or CR know exactly what to say next, don't you? So say it. There you go. All right, all right. First of all, an all-or-nothing mindset. This is really what sits underneath the idea of perfectionism. It's an extremist outlook that says that I either have to do it all and I got to do it all perfectly, or why even do it at all? And, and so, by the way, this is why Perfectionists often are procrastinators. Because you see, if I have a task that I need to go out and organize my garage, I'm not gonna just go organize my garage, I wanna go organize my garage in such a way they're gonna wanna come and cover it in, you know, Home and Gardens magazine to show you this is what a perfectly organized garage should look like. Now, that's a Herculean effort to do it, and so why even start? Do you begin to see what I'm talking about? Because perfectionists have the idea that it's all or nothing. If I can't make 100%, I deserve an F. Do you see what's wrong with that? That it's either exceptional or it's unacceptable. And it's terrible if I'm less than remarkable. I'll never forget one of my kids um, in about third grade was doing a, a, a picture for a school project and I came in, and, uh, and uh, my child had spent about two hours already drawing this, this picture, which was really good for a third grader, I have to tell you. And while I was looking over their shoulder, all of a sudden a smudge happened on the edge of it, 
and my child proceeded to just, just smash the whole thing up and threw it into the, the garbage can. Now, you see what I'm talking about? All or nothing. Now, how does this work in the Christian life? Well, it's the idea that if God isn't pleased with every aspect of my life, then he's not pleased with me at all. You catch him? Sometimes it's a, I won't ever be good enough for God, so why even try? That's a second, that's a second misbelief that we have. I won't ever be good enough for God, so why even try? Now, this is laughable on its face if it weren't so deeply rooted into the feelings and thinking of so many people. And I want to tell you that this idea has nothing to do with God, but everything to do with their perfectionism. Leonardo da Vinci had this idea. Do you know his last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Now, here was a man who was an artist, a sculptor, a scientist, an engineer, an architect. I mean, have you ever looked at the Mona Lisa and thought, man, he was sure hitting the suck button that day as he was drawing that <laughs> picture, you know? Of course not. But this is the way perfectionism leads us to look at things. You know, this is like somebody, frankly, who won't stick with golf or tennis because after a couple of outings, they can't master it perfectly. Well, who can? In fact, you know, honestly, today's a, a baptism Sunday, and, and I would say that there are some people, this is why they're holding off on baptism, is because they think they've got to reach some level of perfection before they're kind of worthy to go ahead and be baptized. And, and I want to tell you, it misses the whole point. Jesus said, as soon as you become a believer, get baptized to, to plant the flag and say, I'm putting my life in Jesus. It's not about me, it's about him. And the question I'd have you consider is how can you ever feel any kind of satisfaction in life when you're infected with that kind of a viral thinking? Here's a third one. God is so hard to please, he's, he's not worth my pursuit. And it's not hard to see how you'd arrive at that uh, conclusion, is it? Because with perfectionism, it's so hard to please yourself or it's so hard to please someone else who's a perfectionist. And so we project that onto God and we imagine that he is like that. Now, frankly, this, this whole idea that God is really hard to please, usually this is a result, there's two things, and there's not a fill in the blank, but you might want to write these down, that, that we've had some disapproving influencers in our life, maybe a parent or a teacher or a coach or an older brother or sister, that we just never quite measured up. And the wounds from that went very deep. If you will, they kind of, they, they've, they've hit our love receptors. And because we felt rejected, we've kind of calloused those over. Or it's sometimes a result of what I, uh, like when one guy came up with the term dysfunctional. Dis, uh, In fact, I'd change that word to disgraceful, disgraceful religion. Because it's the idea that, you know, you've got to measure up for God to accept you and like you. And, and uh, he may love you, but he doesn't like you. 
And, uh, and it's, just, it's this whole idea. People only see God as a cosmic football referee who's watching carefully for any infraction so he can blow the whistle, throw the flag, and march off the penalty in our life. And I just would ask you, who would want to serve a God like that? Why would you want to love somebody that you see is that way? And that's why Christianity, frankly, is all about finding a different take on these things. In fact, that Bible word that we have, the word repent, in the New Testament, in the Greek, the New Testament is written in a Greek language, the Greek word there is a word metanoia. It means to change your mind. Change the way you're thinking about things. Change the way you're, you're living and doing things because everything we do comes out of what we think in our mind and in our heart. And so Christianity, it's, it's all about changing the way we have been thinking about God. In fact, those love receptors that frankly have been underdeveloped and even wounded in our life, God wants to cause those to come alive. And if you'll write this down, here's a different take, and that is, first of all, God far exceeds all that I imagine about him. Now, I may imagine that he's a perfectionist. I may imagine that he's unpleasable, but that's my imagination. And that's why God doesn't leave things to our imagination. He carefully works to reveal himself to us and reveal the kind of person he actually is, and especially how he loves us. See, this is why at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, the first two commandments have to do with God saying, I am the Lord your God, and don't have any other God instead of me, because any other God you put in your life instead of me is going to leave you messed up, man. And number two, don't try to make an image of anything like me. Now, why? Why? Well, it's because he knows that any imagination, any image we could have of him doesn't match who he really is because he far exceeds all that I imagine about him. And friend, he reveals that he loves us and in fact, he created the universe to bring us into it so that we could be a family with him forever. In fact, I love how a, uh, an author by the name of Max Lucado, he was actually writing a, a piece of prose, and he was dealing with this whole thing about, well, okay, I know the Bible says God loves me, but he doesn't really like me. And so he, he puts it this way, listen to his words, God is fond of you. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. If he had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Face it, friend. He's crazy about you. Now, friends, that's true about God, whether you imagine him that way or not. And what needs to change, you see, are our faulty imaginations to see what God has clearly revealed about himself. St. Augustine put it this way, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. Now, question. Is it possible for a person to be deeply, passionately loved by somebody and be oblivious to it? And be able to, un, unable to believe it's really true or to really receive it? Of course it is. 
See, here's the second thing, if you'll write this down. Though he's perfect, God is nothing like a perfectionist. Oh, he's perfect, but not a perfectionist. He's far from it. In fact, time, I don't have time to go into this. I'll tell you who is a perfectionist. It's Satan. Satan's all over the perfectionist game, my friend. And I'll give you time to think about that one on your own. I just don't have time to go into it. Now, how do I know that God's perfect, but he's not a perfectionist? Well, two things. Number one, first of all, the Bible clearly teaches us that God can be pleased. And you have never, ever met a perfectionist who could really be pleased. But God can be. In fact, the Bible clearly teaches us that he, in fact, it's more easy to please him than it is to please some of us. In fact, on your, on your outline, I'm not going to ask you to turn any of these, but I decided to just put, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I don't know, about 15 or 20 verses of scripture that you can see there that God is specific on the kinds of things that when we do them, they please him. If I could just put it this way, the desire to please God pleases God. And perfectionists can't ever be pleased. Second thing I'd say is you need look no farther than Jesus of Nazareth and how he dealt with people and what he taught about God to see. God is not a perfectionist. Did Jesus deal with people as a perfectionist? No way. In fact, that verse that we started with up there at the top of your notes, Matthew chapter 5, you, you see it there again where Jesus said, therefore be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You be perfect. Now, I just encourage you later on, don't take the time to do it now because I've got this brilliant message I want you to be listening to, but go back and just read the verses around that. And you know what Jesus says? He says, now you know what? If you just love people because they're like you, well, even scoundrels do that. If you can love people just because they're lovable toward you, well, that doesn't take anything at all. Be like your heavenly Father because he sends goodness and rain and sunshine on the just and on the unjust. He loves even the unlovely and unlovable. And what Jesus is saying is, you be like your Father in heaven. That's the kind of perfection that you want to be after. Like father, like son or daughter. It's a very different take, is it not? Here's the third thing. God is more pleased with, in fact, here's the big takeaway from this whole series that we're going to do this month we want you to get. God's more pleased with my progress than impatient for my perfection. That God understands that human beings grow by gradualism and development more than instantaneous virtue and maturity. You, nobody gets anything all at once. We have to grow there. Now, I have to be careful here. I don't mean to say you're sitting there and you say, well, okay, you know, I only committed adultery once this month. You know, uh, you know I, I only robbed two convenience stores this month instead of four, you know, and I'm on my way. Now, you know what I'm talking about here. We're talking about maturity and development 
not disobedience and rebellion, okay? We're, we're clear about that. But the fact is, God understands that it's a process for us to grow. In fact, the other day, you know, I got it. It's been a long time since I've done this, but I got to show you a video of it, my newest grandchild, my little grandson Luke, Lauren's son Luke, just the other day took his first steps, and they happened to have their phone on to capture this. Watch, watch this video here as he is, is taking his. Uh, have we, have, I don't need us to look at that. There we go. Here it is. Watch this. Look at that. Look at that. Go get it. Go get it. Oh, look at that. Good job. Good job. Oh, isn't that an awesome thing? And uh, he doesn't realize he's just achieved being a bipod. Whoop. Like, that's so short. Let's watch that again. Could you just... Ready? Uh, you know, here, here we go. Here we go. Go get it. Here we go. Go get it. Go get it. Now, I just want to ask you, if, if you were his parents, would you be saying to him, hey, son, now, whoa, 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 wait, why did you do that? In fact, he's still doing that thing where instead of walking, he'll just hit the ground and crawl because he can do it faster. And, and what if his parents were to say, stop that right now. You get back up on those two legs and, and walk. See, that's how some people think God is. And he's nothing like that at all. Because he's pleased with progress more than perfection. See, why do you think God went out of his way to put in his word stories of people like Jacob and Moses and David and Peter? People who failed miserably. And yet God to each one of them said, listen, you've got this. You get back up on your feet and you keep moving because I got something great I want to do in and through your life and your greatest days aren't here yet. You, you see what I'm talking about here. In fact, 2 Peter 3.18 is just such a great passage. Look at what it says. In fact, would you read this out loud with me? This is so key and central in our lives. It would be good for us to say it out loud and affirm it together. So let's read it. 2 Peter 3.18, here we go. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Jesus and his grace, knowing him, he's the miracle grow that can help you metabolize failures and get back up on your feet and really grow. By the way, Paul's words, at the very beginning up at the top from 2 Corinthians, Verse 13, where he says, this is our wish for you, your perfection. That's a word that actually means this is what we want to see. We want to see you grow in wholeness and fully develop. I want to see you not only crawl, but walk, and then learn to run, and then be able to race. See, I want us in the moments we have left to focus in here on the process that God is pursuing with us. Because if we don't understand this, it's easy for us to get in, hold on to our misbeliefs and, and, and just get messed up in this whole idea that it's all or nothing. In fact, I just say to you, it, it's not our pursuit of God as much as his pursuit of us that matters here. <laughs> My goodness, it's only by his grace that we become what he's had in mind for us to become and that's because of all that he 
has done for us. In fact, Philippians 1.6, here's a verse we'll probably use several times in this series over this month, where the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. Circle that word. You could put another word there, full perfection. That's the idea. He's going to finish his work. He's going to keep doing it until he's finished, until the day of Christ Jesus. And the day of Christ Jesus is when Jesus will return to bring this present age in which we're living to an end and begin his eternal age. So what he's saying is, is that God is beginning a process. In fact, what I want to do, I want to give you three theological terms here in the next few moments. Uh, in fact, if you just look down at the next uh, couple, three points that are coming, there's these three words that you'll see. My justification, my sanctification, my glorification. We can't emphasize these too much. We've touched these with you before. But actually, this explains how God is doing our salvation, if you will, in three phases. In fact, you could just write that in next to these words. By justification, that's phase one. Sanctification is phase two. Glorification, that's phase three. So let's jump into these and look at them. First of all, my justification. Here's what God wants you. God wants you to know where you stand with him. And what he wants you to know is, he wants you to be able to say, I'm permanently accepted in Christ. That in my union with Jesus Christ, God has permanently accepted me. Now, the word justification, that's a word that means to be exonerated, to be acquitted. To be justified, an easy way to remember it is to be made justified, never sinned at all. That's how righteously God says, I now stand before him. And this is where salvation begins. Jesus, it's not on your notes, but in John 5, 24, says the one who, who, who hears my teaching and believes me and the one who sent me, he has eternal life. He's passed over from death to life. He will not come under condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, therefore, there's no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, God wants you to know where you stand with him. And you couldn't stand in a better place than being in him, a more intimate, more secure place than being in him. In fact, Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 is where this is really taught clearly. Look at what it says. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Circle that little phrase, in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, or in him, occurs about 180 times in the New Testament. And it's a way of understanding that now, because I am linked to Jesus Christ, God has put me in Christ through his Holy Spirit. And I have oneness with him. For, notice he goes on to say, he chose us in him, there's that little phrase again, you ought to circle that, before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. Now you see what that's saying? Before the, before the world was ever created, God already had you in mind. That's why he brought the world into existence. He wanted you. And he wanted you to be right with him. And he chose you to belong to him. And then he goes on to say, 
he predestined us to be adopted as sons. Now, don't try to outthink that, uh, that idea. Feel it in your heart instead of thinking it in your mind. Because what he wants you to understand is God wanted you. He wanted you before you ever knew about him. He'd set his eye on you and he'd chosen you to be, a, to be one with him forever. And he gave you a destiny even before the world was ever created to be adopted as his son. And by the way, that phrase adopted as son, that's a loaded term of security because in the New Testament era, if you adopted a child, they were actually more secure than a natural child. You could disown a natural child, but you could never disown an adopted one. So you see what he's saying here? You're permanently accepted. You don't have to do anything to measure up to that. He's given it to you as a gift. Through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, that just means God really wanted to do this. Wasn't reluctant to give you a right relationship with him. He wanted you, and he wanted to do this, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Circle that phrase, in Christ. That's who he's talking about. Jesus is the beloved one. And this doesn't mean God has coldly adopted you and grants you salvation like some business transaction of, you know, changing an auto title at DMV. No, no, no. He's saying he's chosen you for himself. Friend, the whole trinity conspired to make you gods forever. That's what that's saying. Now, that's phase one, my justification. Here's phase two. Let's touch it real quick. My sanctification. And that word means to be made holy to be made set apart for God, and it means I'm being gradually conformed to Christ's likeness. Because salvation is not just something God does for us, but it's something he does to us, and he does in us, and he does with us, and he does through us for his world. And what he's saying is God is at work now to bring about excellence in your life, the very excellence of the likeness of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, let's be sure we get this right. God loves you just like you are. You don't have to do anything to be more lovable to him, to be more acceptable. He loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to see you stay just like you are. And so when Jesus Christ comes into your life, his Holy Spirit begins the process of actually changing you to make you like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3, 16 to 18. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What's he talking about there? Well, the veil here, Paul's been talking about how Moses sometimes would appear in the presence of God. And when he appeared in the presence of God, God's very presence caused his face to glow. And when he'd come back out to the people of Israel, they'd say, whoa, look at that guy's face, it's glowing. But then his face would gradually, because the light wasn't from him, it was, it was, it was kind of like phosphorus. You know how you put it in the light and it will glow in the dark? But after a while it finally loses because it's not its own light. And that was happening with Moses. So the people of Israel wouldn't see the glory of God fade, he would put a veil over his face. 
And Paul is saying, there's some people that that's the way they are with God. It's like they've got a veil between them and God. C.S. Lewis described it in his own life as he said, it's, it's like a suit of armor that I had to take off and drop. And so he says, when you come to the Lord, that veil gets removed, and the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And all of us with an unveiled face, seeing the glory of the Lord, as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed, and underline this, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now notice this, that transformation is happening. Notice it's by degree. By degrees, it's not all at once, it's gradually that we grow, not instantaneously, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. And I want to say to you, <laughs> you may not be everything that you would really like to be, but if you know Jesus Christ, I'd be willing to bet my next paycheck you're not what you used to be. Because Jesus, by his spirit, is already beginning to work and change and do things in your life that are making you new. And guess what? He's never going to tire of doing that. He's going to keep up that process until someday you're with him in heaven. In fact, I love how a guy named David Anderson, who wrote a great book called Gracism, and uh, at his church, uh, there are some isms, and here's one of them. Uh, he's particularly talking about being judged by people who are racist. He says, you're not as bad as they think you are. Though you're not as good as you want to be, but you're more loved than you know, and you're more favored than you deserve. Isn't that true? Good. Good. Now here's phase three, my glorification. Now, now get this, I want you to make sure you get this. My justification, that's the past. That's salvation past, because that already happened. You know, the New Testament never teaches you need to do something to be justified if you're already in Christ. It's been done for you. It's the past. Sanctification, phase two, that's the present. But glorification, phase three, that's the future. And my glorification means that I'll be completely transfigured in Christ's presence when he comes back. He's going to transform me like nothing I can imagine. In fact, the Bible actually says that. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, if, if you could see yourself how you will someday be because of Jesus Christ, you'd almost be inclined to worship what you're going to be like. It's going to blow you away so much. 1 John 3, 2 says this. Beloved, in fact, would you circle that word? Anytime you see that word, and I hate how some of our newer translations say this, dear children or you know, dear ones, because that word beloved, it has a loaded theological meaning now because you and I are in the beloved, the ones loved by God. That's what that's meaning. You who are loved by God, we are God's children when? Now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so what he's saying is, you know, we're not there yet. This glorification where there's no more sickness, no more death, no more sorrow, that's future. Now, some people get that phase 
confused with the present phase and think they should never be sick now if they're a follower of Christ. They should never die now. They should never have any problems. And that's not true. But in that future phase, it's going to be totally true what he's saying. So the three phases of salvation. Do you see how we can say, I have been saved, I am being saved, but I will be saved. You see how all three of those are really true. And this is why Jude, in Jude chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, says this, but you, notice that word again, beloved, you who are the ones loved by God, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Now, there's a there's a verse that putting perfectionist lenses on can distort for sure. Oh, well, that I better keep myself in the love of God. You're missing the whole point. He's saying because you are loved by God, bask in that. Celebrate it. Grow in it. Find assurance and motivation in it. Thrive in it because of how much he loves you. Now, isn't that a cool thing? That God is after that with you. And it's not so much about your scorecard or your track record. It's what God has set his heart and mind on you to do. And he's going to do it because he is perfect. Though he's not a... Man, I hope we can try our best today to start erasing that idea out of your mind. Now, here's what we're going to do over the next series. Can I just give you these last points? Because this is kind of, here are some ideas that we're going to be talking about over this next month about, okay, well, how do we actually grow? How do we make this thing of sanctification work? So let me give you this. I call this a power chart for living. About 20 years ago, I saw a guy named Gary Collins, who was a Christian psychologist at the time, talk about the factors that really help people to really grow well and grow thoroughly and I gave him a message, and a friend of mine uh, who was sitting uh, listening uh, to that message, Brenda Royce, uh, she started rearranging them and came up with and made an acronym. And she said, hey, listen, here it is. It's a power chart. I said, man, that is so good. I wrote this down in my Bible. And I review this from time to time, so that might be good for you to do. So let's just touch them, because we're going to teach on these in this series. First of all, there's the power of his indwelling spirit. You see, it's his Holy Spirit in us that empowers and ignites our capacity to grow as persons. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave this up to you to figure out on your own. I'm going to come and live in you by the person of my Holy Spirit, and I'll walk with you, and I'll teach you if you'll rely on me. So it's the power of his Spirit. Then it's courage. Here's the, the chart. Here's the first, the C of chart. It's courage to face fears with faith. And because, remember, with perfectionists especially, is this fear of failure is just huge. Fear of inadequacy, fear that I'll be rejected somehow if I'm not perfect, if I'm not exceptional. In fact, you've heard us say this before. This is why the command found most frequently in Scripture are those two words, fear not. Fear not. 365 times they're in the Bible. So it's like God knows we need one for every day. Courage to face fears with faith. Third, honesty with myself, God, and others. 
honesty to face what is instead of the delusions and self-deceptions that I'm holding on to about my weaknesses and my struggles. God says that you got to get honest. And you know what's so cool? When you know that the one who knows you best loves you the most, that gives you a sense of security and validation to be able to live with courage and with honesty. Here's the A, affirming friendships with fellow strugglers, with other people who understand that, that this really is a difficult walk. It's a fight of faith, <laughs> and we need help to do it. See, friend, you are not invincible, though you think you are, and you need others to help you in this journey that Jesus is calling you to, to walk and live. And we're missing so much when we're not vulnerable with trusted other people. Notice these words of Jesus. He said to his disciples, you have stood with me in the troubles that have tested me. Now I just say to you that if he, the Son of God, needed other people to stand with him, how much more do you and I? And that's why in this series we're going to talk to you about getting in a small group, getting in a support group, getting into an affinity group, getting in a ministry group, because it's when we're with others that we can grow. The R, here's the R, right thinking to fuel my soul. Right thinking. You know, today we're suffering from truth decay, big time. And that's why we need the truth of God's Word to come in and change our thoughts and influence new feelings and help us to replace the flawed, faulty ideas that we've been living by to renew our minds and really grow. You only grow with proper nutrition, so you need right thinking. And then T, here's T, time to get there. Just need time to get there. And no one understands that better than God who actually created time and knew what he could accomplish with it. And here's the cool thing. When his Holy Spirit is in your life, when he's activating these things we've just touched on, time is on your side, my friend. It's on your side. I remember being in a grocery store one time and I caught the tail end of an argument that was happening between a parent and their teenager. And the parent just said in exasperation, I wish you'd just grow up. And the teenager said, yeah, well, it's a long process. And that was pretty smart. He was a smart aleck, but that was pretty smart. It is a process. I just want to ask you, are you in Christ? Have you put yourself in him to say, Jesus Christ, man, I need you. I need you. I want to follow you and live for you. I need you to change me, transform me, cleanse me, heal me, save me. That's the starting point. Lord Jesus, I pray for my friends who are listening, and I, I just pray that something that we've said today helps them to see you. Because when we see you, it changes everything. We love you. Thank you that we are beloved by you. In your holy name we give thanks. Amen.